I don't think that the average person knows exactly what she did for baseball and know what they, you know, what she did for women. When players and managers see Claire on the field, you know, they definitely go out of their way to try to see her, and it's unlike anybody else on the field. In the journalistic world, um, she was rare. There's a name which she certainly uh, can relate to, and that was Jackie Robinson. She wasn't going to go away, and Jackie Robinson wasn't going to go away. Being that trailblazer, she paved the way by, by doing it right. She did it in her own style. Welcome to SC Featured. I'm Jen Latta. You just heard from Dusty Baker, Curtis Granderson, Steve Garvey, Joe Torre, and Don Mattingly. They're all talking about Claire Smith, a trailblazer for women in sports media, especially in the area of baseball, where she broke through barriers. Recently, she made history by becoming the first woman to win the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. The award for meritorious contributions to baseball writing is considered the highest honor of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Claire will be presented the award during the Hall of Fame weekend in Cooperstown, New York. Claire grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania in the 1950s, the daughter of a chemist and an artist. Her mom, Bernice, worked for General Electric, helping NASA put Americans into space. Her dad, William, was a sculptor and a painter, whose work would be shown at the Smithsonian. I come from a family of dreamers, but also people who acted on that dream. So it was just push, push, push ahead, and they weren't going to let things like gender or race stop them. Claire and her brother, Hawthorne Smith, would go to Phillies games as often as possible with their cousin, especially when the Dodgers were in town. Mom had a love of baseball, and I think Claire really picked up a lot of it from her. The game, the ambiance, the sounds, the the way that it transcends time, um, the way that it is ancient, but at the same time brand new and full of possibilities. And then when you fill it in with the social context of what Jackie Robinson meant, not only to the game, but to society, and seeing baseball also as a vehicle for change, I think these are all things that grafted perfectly and naturally with Claire's personality and aspirations. Building tents out of my bed sheets so I could try to fool my parents into thinking I was asleep, but listening to the transistor radio, listening to my Dodgers whenever they played a team east of the Mississippi. I taught myself how to uh, keep score. I taught myself how to figure out earned run averages and batting averages. I think Claire has always seen baseball as something larger than the game itself, from the very beginning with the history of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. When Claire was nine years old, she received a gift that would open a whole new world for her. My parents gave me an antique typewriter, and it was in working order. Mom and Dad must have known something that I didn't know at the time, but it it was perfect. 
my parents saw in her um, a literary spirit, um, someone who has always had um, a gift with with words and with feeling. And I think that beyond the actual utilitarian purpose of a typewriter, it was a symbol. It was a symbol that this was um, this was a gateway. This was a path. Um, this was a potential trail for her to write not only her story, but history. Um, who would have known at that age that she'd be being enshrined in Cooperstown? I don't know if my parents saw that deeply, but I think that they wanted to express to my sister that this was about possibilities, not limitations. And Claire did not limit herself. She graduated from Temple University and spent 32 years in the newspaper industry, working as a sports writer and editor at the New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Bulletin, and Hartford Current before joining ESPN in 2007, where she is now a news editor for baseball broadcasts. Claire started covering Major League Baseball while at the Hartford Current. In her first year there, 1982, she covered college sports while filling in on the baseball beat. But by the next year, she was covering the New York Yankees, becoming the first full-time female Major League Baseball beat writer ever. John Pessa was the deputy sports editor at the time for The Current. She said that she would um, work extremely hard, and she said that her uh, the way she looked at sports writing was to um, treat athletes as people. She wasn't looking for um, salacious. She wasn't looking for headlines. She was looking to understand who they were and what their lives were, and that was the kind of sports department and sports section we were looking to put together. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. They needed a baseball writer, and I needed a job. So I guess they must have said, why not? <laughs> I can't argue with them. Why not? We knew that she was going to face um, uh, significant obstacles, but um, she knew what she was getting into, and uh, we knew, and we decided that we wanted to, uh, to give it a shot. Uh, she was determined to make it work, and so were we, and to be honest, we really didn't hesitate to, to hire her. The fear is, for me, was just to overcome what was still a lingering shyness and to honestly being one of the nine newspapers that traveled covering the Yankees, knowing you were kind of on the outer rim, but you were being tasked with competing with the big four, the New York Times and New York Daily News and New York Post and Newsday. Well, how intimidating is that? And at the same time, you're covering George Steinbrenner's Yankees, which was the height of the circus era in New York. So you just would just silently pray every day, don't let me mess this up. Don't let me get clobbered. Um, do your job, do your job. Be as thorough and as 
as aggressive, politely aggressive again as you can be, but be true to your profession and your newspaper. I was worried that her spirit would get crushed because of what she was going to face. Being a reporter um, on a beat, on a baseball beat, is a tough job. If you got the baseball job on a major metro, you were, you were one of the stars um, of the newspaper. Everybody knew who you were. And the Yankees were and still are the top beat in, in baseball. A, uh, anyone who gets that job is, by definition, a star. And you have to perform or you don't keep that job. To put a woman in that position in 1983 um, was huge. To put a black woman in that position uh, made it that much bigger. Claire proved she could do the job and she knew the sport very well. Managers and former players praised her work as a journalist, calling her fair but firm. And they trusted her, including Joe Torre, manager of the Yankees for 12 seasons. Claire is someone, you know, so unlike other sports writers uh, at the time. And as far as trusting you, you just look in her eyes and, and, and she looks you right in the eye and, and you have a sense that there, there, there's a woman here who, who really cares about what you're saying. You know, when Claire asks you, you know, how you're doing, she wants to know the answer. She wants to know the answer because that's going to be part of of, of translating to her readers, uh, you know, what this person is all about. There's a name which she certainly uh, can relate to, and that was Jackie Robinson, uh, because of what he had to endure when he started playing at the major league level. Uh, you know, she's had a taste of that in, in trying to sort of infiltrate, you know, uh, a quote-unquote man's world in baseball in the clubhouse. And, um, you know, it wasn't easy for her. Current Washington Nationals manager Dusty Baker said he was surprised to see an African-American woman covering the sport because there weren't that many African-American men doing it. Her questions were always to the point, but with personality and she was easy to talk to and you trusted her. You knew that she wasn't going to do anything to maliciously hurt you or try to uh, increase her prowess in the in the industry, which is which is really big, because the average player or manager, whoever, is not very uh, trusting because they've been burned along the way. ESPN's Jamel Hill started reading Claire's work as a young journalist and was quickly impressed. For me, I think you know you kind of come into this profession as a woman knowing that you are going to have to fight for your spot. There are people uh, who still believe women don't belong. And so when you see somebody like Claire, who not only fought for the right to belong, uh, but also did the job damn well, it just gives you more confidence that you can do the same thing. But the job did come with some challenges for Claire, most notably in the 1984 National League Championship Series between the Cubs and the Padres where she was physically forced out of the Padres' locker room at Wrigley Field after Game 1. Claire will talk with ESPN national baseball writer Marley Rivera about that incident later in this episode. 
Claire is the 68th recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award. Former player Steve Garvey knows she belongs in the Hall of Fame. The Knights of the Journalistic Roundtable at Cooperstown uh, have moved over. They've readjusted their, their sittings, and, uh, and now the Queen is joining them. There's always going to be a first, so I look at it this way. I might be the first, but there's so many brilliant women out there. I'm just waiting for the, uh, the next winner, and I'm waiting for company. And just like the games they attended together as children, Claire's brother Hawthorne will be in attendance with her at the Hall of Fame weekend. Claire continues to leave a mark on the game of baseball. Um, when she enters the park, she feels the magic of baseball. There's magic in baseball. For someone who's never been there before, the first time you come in, and there are the smells, there are the sounds, and people warming up and just having a catch and pitching it around and playing pepper, and you hear me, you know, hot dog, peanuts here, just like that ambiance. I think Claire always goes to the park and feels that magic and writes and experiences it as though she's one of those people who's coming to a baseball game for the very first time. You know, for her, it's not the 11th game of a 15-game road trip. It's not, oh, just another dog day afternoon in August. It's magic, and I think she brings that. I think that's what she brings every day. I think that I get emotional because I do wish my parents could have seen this. But I know my son's going to be there. And uh, he's like, Mom, what does this mean? And it's it's taken me a while to try to answer, figure out the answer to that question, and I'm going to try to explain it to him when we get to Cooperstown. Coming up, Claire Smith sits down with Marley Rivera. But first, if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. If you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribed so we're easy to find next time. And if you subscribe in the ESPN app, we can send you an alert whenever we have a new episode. We'll be right back. Dear Mike Puma and the New York chapter of the Baseball Writers Association of America, we respectfully and honorably submit the nomination of Claire Smith as a Taylor J.G. Spank Award candidate for induction in the summer of 2017. We truly cannot thank of a more deserving and justified candidate than Claire Smith for her historic and merit. Claire Smith was the first woman to extensively cover a Major League Baseball beat, let alone a woman of color. She's a pioneer who opened the clubhouse doors for every single woman of the BBWA. Claire Smith has led a courageous fight in her brilliant career, breaking barriers for not only all women in the baseball writing field, but for... It is an honor and a privilege for me to respectfully submit the candidacy of Claire Smith. This is your opportunity to make history. Welcome back to SC Featured. I'm Jen Latta. You just heard from ESPN national baseball writer Marley Rivera, who covered the New York Yankees beat just like Claire Smith. Marley read a letter to her fellow baseball writers nominating Claire for the J.G. Taylor Spink Award at the end of the 2015 season. Claire had never heard the speech before sitting down with Marley. Claire, what do you think when you hear everything that you've done in your career, 
When you hear it like that, what's your first reaction when you hear this entire list of accomplishments? Well, my first reaction is, do you get up on the first day of the job and say, okay, I have zero wins and I know I need 350 to get to the Hall of Fame? No, you get up on the first day of the job and say, let's go to work and let's try to get this right. And you keep doing that and doing that and doing that. And then, lo and behold, 35 years later, because you lacked imagination and couldn't figure out what else to do, you're still doing it. And then you turn around and you receive this amazingly generous generous nomination and award from your peers. And that's when it just starts to to just hit you, uh, heart, mind, it touches your soul. And you start to re-examine. I, uh, through a lifetime, tried not to look at it any more than let's just go to work today. So all of this has made me take a a huge step back. Um, And in conversations with my son, my nieces, my nephews, it's forced me to look at it through a different set of lenses. And it's, it's humbling it just, I know that you said don't cry, so I'm trying not to. It's okay. But it, it, does, it does make me tear up because I guess the word is love. I feel a lot of love this summer. You went into a, a job, a career, that when you started had nothing to do with merit. You could have been the best writer. You could have been the most resourceful writer. You could have been everything. And if you look like you did, you weren't going to succeed. Well, uh, there were certainly uh, a niche where a lot of people hid and and lived uh, their beliefs that I shouldn't succeed. But there were so, so many others who believed that I should because it was based on merit. Can you write? Uh, can you help our publication be better? What can you show us? My dad told me a long time ago in preparing me to go out into the world as an African-American, he said, you're always going to have to prove what you're not before you can prove what you are. I found that to be equally true as being a woman in this profession. You have to go in and you have to wipe those looks of doubt and distrust and cynicism off of people's face by just hitting them with knowledge and letting them know that you know as much as the gentleman standing to your right, to your left, maybe maybe even a little more. It's, it's wonderful to see the light bulb go on, and I'm sure you've seen it, Marley, when you interview a player, coach, or manager and you tell them something they just assume you have no knowledge of. You tell them something about themselves, and you see the look on their faces and the ex- immediate acceptance. Oh, somebody did their homework. Somebody came in here because they have a right to come in and ask these questions because they know what they're doing. And that's a wonderful feeling. You beat them with knowledge. You beat them with knowledge. That's just a 
that's been the key. So you've had such a long career. It's very difficult to go through every step. So I want to ask you this. When did you feel that you belonged? I don't think that I ever felt that I didn't. And with one exception, I knew that I wasn't a veteran writer the first time I walked into Yankee Stadium. But I clung to the veteran writers. I watched them. I watched the ones that I admired from afar. Claire, when you, if I go up to you and I say, what was hardest, being a woman or being a person of color covering a beat, what was harder? Oh, it's not even a contest. It's, it was being a woman. When I started covering baseball in, in 1982, the game was still had a large number of African-American yes, players and superstars. Ironic, right? the presence of African-Americans. Right. And that larger. mattered. That mattered in the clubhouse. So I felt the day that I walked into the Yankees, I probably wouldn't have a problem as an African-American because you look around that clubhouse and you had Willie Randolph, you had Dave Winfield, Don Baylor, eventually Ken Griffey, Senior, Oscar Gamble, and on and on, Billy Sample. And so I would think that one word out of place from one of their teammates would bring the wrath of God onto that player's head. However, some things never go out of fashion, sadly, as we we keep learning. And one is being a sexist um misogynist pig is still acceptable in far too many uh, quarters. So, yes, it was, that was more daunting by far than being African-American. What people might have thought as far as race was one thing. What they said openly was another. So, starting with the managers, I was always very fortunate to work with the most open-minded and accepting of managers. If Yogi Berra looks at you the first time you meet him and and all he says is, hello, Claire, nice to meet you, then what player in his clubhouse is going to have an issue with you? They'd have to disagree with Yogi first. They'd have to disagree with Dallas Green, Lou Pinello, Bucky Dent. That was Jim Leland for me. Jim Leland, exactly, Buck Showalter, and they'd have to go through that wall. You don't want to, you didn't want to mess with Dallas Green. I was hit with a sanitary sock on the back in in, uh, Baltimore, in the visiting clubhouse in Baltimore. I was standing next to the laundry cart. It could have been a mistake. Dallas was furious because he didn't know if it was a mistake or not. And I said, Dallas, you know, you're at the time, not a great Yankees team. I said, Dallas, it could have been one of your pitchers. Who knows? <laughs> so I hit the, hit the laundry cart. But he closed the clubhouse. And the captain of the team at the time was Don Mattingly. And Don Mattingly made it very clean, clear to me, not, in, not on my team, not in my clubhouse, Captains of that team, Willie, Don Mattingly, Jeter, they just set a tone where I never felt that I was walking into a snake pit 
when I covered the Yankees. Let's talk about Snake Pits, 1984, San Diego Padres. Okay. Can I preface 1984 by you saying... You can say whatever you like. You don't have to ask me for permission. 35th year, and I had one truly bad day, one truly bad experience, and that was 1984. In the 1980s, I learned that the American League was open, universal acceptance. If you had a credential, you were permitted in every clubhouse in the American League. The National League had a laissez-faire um, policy that if the clubs could set their own policies. So 84, one of those clubs that had a policy that barred women was San Diego Padres, and they were heading, they barreling towards the postseason. I knew I was covering the National League playoffs. Our Red Sox writer was going to cover the American. So my editor, John Pessa, wrote to the league and said, this is the deal. I'm sending Claire Smith to cover if should the she's Padres my writer, right she's, she's doing right should the Padres make the postseason um, so he gave them a heads up he gave them a heads up and he received in writing their assurance that once the postseason starts the clubhouses cease to belong to the individual clubs they belong to the league in the uh, league championship series, and then once you get to the World Series, they belong to the commissioner's office. So their policies supersede. So I was, uh, we were sure that I would have access. Uh, so go barreling in to the 84 postseason, uh, Chicago Cubs versus the San Diego Padres, with the Cubs hosting the first two games of the best of five um playoff series and lo and behold game one ends and I go down to cover you get quotes from both teams as you know it's the postseason a Wrigley you, Field correct a Wrigley Field and uh and I am pushed out um yelled at pushed out hand physically put on my back and pushed towards the door who did that a clubhouse a clubby. security person or a no, clubby? No, clubby, clubby. clubby. Uh, someone in Padre's polo uh, shirt. And as I'm being pushed out, I'm pushed past the general manager, and I explain to him the steps we took and the assurances we had. Were you emotional and at this point, or were you just... No, I, w- I wasn't. I was, um, I was confused, and I'm trying to fast-forward how am I going to do my job, but... There was a lot of milling around in a very tiny Wrigley Field clubhouse filled <laughs> filled with with uh, reporters from around the country, and everybody's really doing their jobs. They're, you can tell they're noticing the ruckus, but they have to do their jobs too. So you're I explain this at your own deadline, and I explain this to the general manager, and I said that we're Who told. Who was the general manager at the time, Claire? Uh, Jack McKeon. No. So he a dear said, friend of ours now, which is, uh, we'll see this. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, and I said, but I'm being told that I have to leave because this is Dick Williams's clubhouse. And he said, that's right. And so as I'm being pushed towards the door, in comes Dick Williams 
from the interview room, I assume, and I'm as I'm going out, and I go through the same thing. And I said, I had assurances that I can cover this team, but now I'm told that I have to leave because it's your clubhouse. That's right. And he keeps going in, and I'm pushed out. So I'm standing out in the the dank, tiny little corridors of Wrigley Field, as you know. It's it's a it's a horrible place to be stranded. Great, iconic stadium. Sorry, terrible but, place to work in. Yeah, the tunnels a, are awful. It's okay. We can yeah, say it. It's it's, it's, it's a wonderful it, place to watch a ball game. A terrible place to work. In. Exactly. Two, two entirely different things. So I'm <laughs> trying to figure out what to do next. It's this is way before cell phones, way before any of this. And I look up point, and are you hear, the only woman. Yeah, I was the, the only woman. To, to I don't sure know if I was the only woman covering the series. I was the only woman who into went into okay. that clubhouse after game one. Um, Henry Hecht of the New York Post, he he's barreling again towards the door. He's on deadline, and he sees me, sizes it up immediately, and he says, what do you need? And I said, I need quotes. And he said, uh, who should I tell? And I said, tell Steve, meaning Steve Garvey. I've known Steve for a long time since before I was a baseball writer. I was a Dodger fan. I'd gone to as many Dodger games as I could, and we'd struck up a friendship because Steve is as fan-friendly a person as you'd ever want to know. Steve is surrounded by reporters. The Padres lost the game, so Steve is doing what Steve always does. He's being a, a good spokesperson, win or lose, and so Henry gets his attention, gets his ear, and tells him what happened, and Steve excuses himself from the the general media and comes out to the tunnel. And at that point, uh, yes, I'm getting emotional. I'm very, very upset. Well, at this point, you haven't been able to do your job. I have not been and able to do my And there's been a lot, of, a lot of time. You're waiting outside. Right. And where they always tell you that... We'll bring people to you. Uh, we'll bring people to you. And and I, now that I recall, a Padres official came out and said, who would you like to speak with? And, well, you want to speak with the pitcher of record. Well, he doesn't want to come out. So you're not able to do your job. But Steve comes out, and I get, I start to kind of fall apart. And Steve said, um, I will stay here as long as you need for me to stay, but remember you have a job to do. And that was uh, the most important message to date in my career. Uh, I He was right. I had a job to do. I had to You had to figure check. out a way you to do it. You had to compartmentalize. So I asked questions. He answered I had what I needed for my story in terms of representing the, what the Padres were feeling. And I went over to the Cubs side. Um, there were ex-Yankees on the Cubs, George Fraser, Don Zimmer, former coach, and they had already heard for some reason what had happened. So the word had spread around. Right, and they were furious. They were just absolutely furious because it was, A, their house, Wrigley Field, and it happened to a reporter that they had worked with professionally, and they felt it was just outrageous, and they expressed that. 
my boss, uh, by the time I was able to inform him what happened, he just started waking people up and ringing phones off the hook. And uh, he told me, he said, you go in there tomorrow. You stay in there. If they have to arrest you, you... I'm like, oh, goodness, John. Okay. Um, yes, me in handcuffs being taken out of the Padres clubhouse. This is going to be great. Well, Peter Ubroth, if that wasn't his first week, it was his second week on the job. And he was informed of what happened. And he just thought, I imagine that this was the oddest thing he'd ever heard, that there were various rules within one sport concerning credentialed journalists. So his first ruling as commissioner was, no, they're not. And he opened universally, uh, unilaterally opened clubhouses to any journalist who was credentialed by Major League Baseball. Two follow-up questions. That's a good journalist. <laughs> it's like, remember, I covered Derek Jeter for a long time. Yes. So I had, you have to put all your follow-up questions together because yes. you'll just say, yes. I'm, not, I'm not answering anything right. else. Right. Number one, what happened with your story that night? And number two, were you able to do your job the next day? I wrote my story that night, and I was able to do my job the next day. I was, to be honest, it was never the same for a long time. All the, the you asked at the start, did I have any doubts, qualms, or I didn't until that day, and then it became really hard to go into clubhouses, unfamiliar clubhouses, for the longest time. I saw Dick Williams on and off over the years. He eventually came to work for the Yankees, if you recall, um, and. I remember someone, uh, Deacon Jones, the Orioles scout, said, oh, you, do you know Dick Williams? And, <laughs> do I? Yeah. And I said, yes, we've met. And I've walked away. And I walked away. Um, I eventually ended up working on a Hall of Fame uh, selection panel uh, veterans committee with him. And... I think this probably hurt more, but he he came up to me and introduced himself and said that he couldn't believe that we hadn't crossed paths before he had read my bio and what an honor it was to be on the panel and everything and and how he was looking forward to working on the panel. And I remember telling uh, a Hall of Fame official I had I walked out of the room and I was very upset, and I said um, that day affected my career and it changed the way I looked at my job forever. For some people, it was just Monday, and if he didn't remember, that hurts as much. Well, it hurts worse because what is the the opposite love? The opposite of love is not hate; it's indifference. Exactly, exactly. And and I know that he might have been struggling with some things 
memory loss or whatever, whatever, but the fact that it had not even made a dent in terms of putting two and two together and sharing that moment, uh, that really hurt more than the actual event in 84. I think it's fair to say that that's the worst day of your career. Yeah. And I had one bad day. So now I'm going to ask you to pick harder because this was easy. I'm going to ask you to pick really what's the best one? Best memory of covering a game. It can be either personally, right, because of some breaking news of how you enjoyed your story that you wrote that day and you believe you were at your finest, or how memorable the game was. Going to Cuba as part of the ESPN broadcast team. That that really is special because it goes back to all the things I said about baseball transcending um, sports and opening doors and showing the way. And, And the fact that the president went, I think, in part timed his visit to Cuba because baseball was going and certainly ESPN really covered well the off-field news because the president was going helping helping our crew prepare uh for their interview with president obama during the game was one of the great privileges of my life uh, helping eduardo perez walk through because he could bring so much of a personal story. He could take his... The child of the Cubans. Right, the child of Cubans, um, many Cuban relatives, and he had an opportunity to speak for them and ask of President Obama, what does this mean for us, especially when you leave? How How will this impact our lives? And Eduardo was very emotional about it, and we talked and talked and talked. And I said, that's how you do it. You just tell him what you just told me, that you have relatives who drove for three hours to get here but can't go to the game because they're not allowed to go to the game, uh, that their annual income is measured in maybe tens of dollars as opposed to what have you. How is this softening of a policy going to affect them? They want to know. I want to know on behalf of my relatives. And he poses questions the way we we determined uh, would be the best approach. And he and President Obama had the most amazing, wonderful, heartfelt conversation sitting, watching the game, and they they bonded so much that Eduardo, before it was over, asked President Obama to pose for a selfie with <laughs> So, you great know, selfie. yeah, that's it was a great the, selfie. That's one of that's the one great, of great ones moments. that we, uh, yes. that, that we've had. Exactly. Well, Claire, you and I can talk for hours. <laughs> I think that uh, our listeners um, would really enjoy it, but I, I'm so grateful to have you here today. And Shared experiences. That, that's oh, it. Well, yeah. I, I can listen to you yeah, for hours, yeah. and uh, congratulations on Thank winning you. the 2017 J.G. Taylor Spink Award, and you're going to be honored 
during Hall of Fame weekend on July 29th. How many pages is that acceptance speech, my friend? It's twice as long as it's supposed to be, so I, I need to get to work on that this weekend. You know the rule, the cardinal rule. You know, I never use uh, three words when one will do. That's right. I need an editor. I have three. They're working on you it. You have three me. editors? Yes. Yes, I do. Should we recognize them? Uh, yes. Lisa Nea Saxon, oh, who our covered the Lisa. Angels. Uh, we walked the walk together. Bob Elliott from Toronto. Our dear friend and uh, J.G.'s Taylor Snake Award winner. And he will bring the humor. And my editor of editors, John Pessa from the Hartford Current. See your champion? We all have yeah, a champion. Yeah. John Pess is yes. our champion? Yes. Yes, he is. You know who mine is? Who is that? Claire Smith. Oh, no. <laughs> really? I thought we were being serious here. I am being serious. You're my champion, <laughs> oh, Claire Smith. God I have a lot you. of, like you said, like I'm very grateful to a lot of editors. You're my have sister. Wonderful we walk people. in this walk together. We've walked it. I still haven't hit them with knowledge. I'm working on that. Hit them with knowledge. <laughs> Thank you all for knowledge. listening. Thank you. We'd like to thank Claire Smith for sharing her story with us, along with Marley Rivera. Like Marley said, Claire will be honored with the 68th J.G. Taylor Spink Award during the Hall of Fame weekend in Cooperstown, New York. This episode was produced by Christine Newby and edited by A.J. Irish and Steve McCarthy. Gustavo Coletti is the senior managing producer. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Jen Latta.